This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. And today, I'm connecting with somebody, very big fan of the journalism that you've been doing over the last uh, couple years. Megan Kuniff is in the building. Thanks for having me so much. Yeah, very, very excited to uh, meet you. Um, I, so I watched the Vlad interview and got a lot of in-depth perspective into the, the trial itself and everything. But can yeah. we start with like how you sort of ended up in this position of doing this kind of reporting in the first place? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, it was a long road uh, through kind of traditional journalism, basically. Like It was always kind of a dream to cover celebrity trials, but I never thought that I'd actually be doing it. You know, I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, and didn't really come from a family that had much like connections to, you know, East Coast media or, you know, I, I don't know. We were pretty down home in Corvallis, like going up to Portland and Seattle was like a big deal for stuff. But my dad was a lawyer, like a, a country lawyer, did criminal defense and kind of anything. I mean, civil stuff, divorce cases, that kind of thing. And he was really interested in the media and uh, cases, you know, anything big going on in the press, he was always paying attention to current events like the OJ case and everything. So that always kind of stuck with me. And I went to University of Oregon, which is just down the road from Corvallis, got into journalism there, worked at the high school paper too, but always kind of wanted to go into journalism and then ended up in Spokane, Washington, working at the paper there for like six or seven years. And that was kind of where I got my start. Not, not kind of, that was totally where so I got So what, what would your media diet have been like in college? So I was reading the New York Times, like really interested into politics stuff, trying to get into that. We read the Register Guard because that was the local paper in Eugene. And we were covering the University of Oregon. So we were interested in like what the administration was doing. We were interested in like what the athletic department was doing. So at the time, uh, my media consumption was that and then also maybe electronic music stuff, like raver stuff. Oh, that was your to, scene? Yeah, yeah. Really? If anyone remembers northwesttechno.org, I was a northwesttechno.org member. That was the board where you found out where all the parties were going on in the northwest, like Eugene, uh, Portland, Eugene, that kind of thing. That was what I was doing. Okay. Yeah. So you were uh, out there partying by on the weekends, and then you were doing your thing as a as a student on the weekdays. Maybe a couple times a month or so, but I had okay. friends who were like hardcore into it, like all the time, like throwing parties, that kind of thing, like DJing, that kind of thing. So I was always kind of into music through that, and you know, the drum and bass scene has a lot of like overlaps with hip hop. So um, it wasn't completely unfamiliar to me the hip hop world, but I'd been so out of touch with it like all, all the internet stuff all the youtube stuff i was completely out of touch of being like siloed in first mainstream papers up in spokane and then uh 
uh, paywalled like legal newspapers like the Daily Journal in LA and then ALMlaw.com. It's very like lawyers only. So I was kind of immersed in that world for a few years. Okay. And so then once you, what was the paper that you ended up getting a job at? Uh, Spokesman Review in Spokane. And then I was at the Idaho Statesman for a little bit. And then the whole reason I came down to California is because the Orange County Register was hiring back in like 2013 era. They had new owners and they were doing some big expansion that of course didn't end up working out. But it was how I was able to get down to Orange County, and uh, actually was hired to cover the city of San Juan Capistrano, okay. which is about as lame as you can kind of imagine. But it's, you know, small town journalism important to those people, like covering the city council and the development down there, which is not what I wanted to end up doing. I always loved courts reporting and cops reporting, but that was just like how you get your footing in the journalism area in Southern California. Right. Like doing a lot of this more dry type of stuff, did that sort of push you in the direction of like, oh, I would eventually like to be reporting on stuff that's more viral or high profile or? Yeah, yeah, eventually like after being in uh, siloed in the like law.com paywalled legal era, I was always like, there's there's so much interesting stuff that we're covering in litigation and what the lawyers are doing. It seems like we should have more mainstream attention on this. So that was why I went to Law and Crime News was because it was a chance to kind of combine traditional legal affairs reporting with like mainstream cases. And that was how I covered Tory Lanez. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So you're you're working for Law and Crime News. What kind of business is that? Yeah, it's Law and Crime Network. Everybody knows Law and Crime Network. The, so the YouTube channel? That, yeah. that was who you're yes. working for. Okay. Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. That. And they have they have a website that at the time it was technically separate operations. They've combined them now. But it was a, a pretty shoestring operation in that they had a small staff and it was just like, hey, Come cover trials on the West Coast. So this is before that, because they have like 5 million subscribers now, and they have like 80,000 people watching YNW Melly's trial the yeah. last time I tuned into it, which is kind of astounding. Totally. And they they just come off the huge surge from the Johnny Depp Amber Heard thing. Right. So they were like, they were trying to keep that going. And they have TV people that, that cover the trials and will just do the live streaming, like local partnerships with like the Florida TV stations or something. But they wanted to build up the website and have like more coverage out on the West Coast. So I was like, hey, that's me. Right. Okay. And so you started, one of the first things they put you on was covering the Tory Lanez trial. And was this the first thing you ever did that was like hip hop adjacent? It was actually uh, coming up here to cover Harvey Weinstein and then Danny oh. Masterson. And the first hip hop trial that I covered was actually Cardi B down in Santa Ana when she got sued over her album art by, oh, the, by guy the guy who, who was pretending yeah. to go down on her while she was holding a Corona bottle, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that was just a totally silly, like stupid case. I mean, it was it, you can't even compare it to the Tory Lanez case in terms of like seriousness. But, but Cardi B didn't have to show up or anything? Oh, she was there. She, oh. she technically didn't have to. But a lot of the times in these civil cases, it's like so personal for them that they mm. want to be there. And the lawyers tell them it it looks good for them to be there. So yeah, she was there. I think it was a four day trial. She was there every day and she testified too. So that was pretty awesome. And there was a huge, it's actually across the street from a high school, the courthouse is, and they all realized Cardi B was there. So it was just like bigger and bigger crowds every day. Wow. Like, There's so some kid asking her to homecoming. And stuff. <laughs> it was funny. It was, it was, it was very like lighthearted, you know? So the kids just start slowly gravitating over to the courthouse yeah. trying to get a glimpse. <laughs> yeah, totally huge crowd. Like I have a video of her leaving the courthouse and there's just like this walking mob of students around her mm -hmm. like people like shouting stuff at her and everything and it was and it was just a, a funny case to cover so that was my first experience with hip-hop you know 
blogs and being like reposted by them and them taking my photos and that kind of thing right yeah because i mean i didn't really notice it until the tory lane's trial but what was that like to like after having done all this stuff that is very very professional and then all of a sudden you're in this world where any tweet that you might put up might become a world star post or academics post or whatever yeah. and then all of a sudden you just have so many more eyeballs on you right yeah it was overwhelming at first and, and it kind of took me a while to realize it was going on too because you know you're not you can't have your phone out in the courtroom right and and then when you get out, you're trying to just update. So you don't have time to look through all your notifications. But it was kind of like, where am I getting all these followers from? I think it was like the second or third day I got 3,000 followers in like an hour and a half. Like go in and then go out and I have 3,000 more followers. And I'm like, okay, where are all these people coming from? And I think it's like the shade room, like you guys, like everybody who's just posting like screenshots of the tweets and stuff. And I was just like, wow, this is like crazy interest in this. yeah i mean like i think i followed you at a certain point because it was just like oh i have no idea who this woman is but she's doing really good investigative stuff into what's going on in this trial and i'm supposed to be paying attention to the trial and when i look at different hip-hop meme pages or whatever they're basically just you know reposting stuff that you were saying so all of a sudden people yeah. just start tapping in you just seem like incredibly useful to people in that moment right yeah and it just seemed like i i feel like i can absorb stuff pretty well in the courtroom like i covered the uh, uh the best trial actually ever that i covered was a couple months before that it was in federal court vanessa bryant's lawsuit over the the against la county over the photos that they took of kobe bryant and Gianna Bryant and the other victims in that helicopter crash. That uh -huh. was a really, really good trial. And there was good in what sense? Though? Just the the lawyers were really, really excellent. The topic was crazy, was crazy, and all the testimony was just like you felt like every word of the testimony was really, really important. And that was handwritten notes only. So I felt like I was like I had practice, like absorbing everything. Like even if you're not even able to get like write down every single quote, if you take notes in a way where you go back and look over the notes, you can almost kind of replay the testimony in your head. You, it starts to come back to you. Right. Like it, it's buried somewhere in your recollection. And it's just like forgotten art of having to actually write things down and remember things and you don't have like a video that you can just be referring back to. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so much more serious, serious mm. with, with, with the no cameras, no laptops in the courtroom. I mean, it's annoying and it's not good for public access, but it just brings such a more like almost solemn feeling to the proceedings. So, and then I always say that my background covering like convenience store robberies up in Spokane, like being the, the 2 p.m. to 11 p.m. reporter in Spokane, and you've got to write a five inch story about a freeway crash that killed two people. It's like you just learn how to like quickly convey information. So when you go into a, a test, you, you know, hear opening statements, you can come out and say, here's what happened in opening statements. The prosecutor's first words before he got before the jury were dance bitch and just go into kind of a chronology of what he said, whereas other people might come out and say, and this is what I noticed on the first day, that so many of the hip hop blogs, their biggest headline from the first day of opening statements was that Tory's lawyer had said something about Megan, like also sleeping with the baby or something. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who was sitting in court, like listening to the opening statements, it, it was such a small moment in his opening. And the way he said it, he was kind of like, yeah, and she'd done this before with the baby. He kind of like just read and was like, well, wait, um, go back to what you were saying about the victim's sex life, like that you wanted to, the jury to know that in your opening statement. As, as somebody who watched a lot of trials, I was just like, I don't think this is going to play very well right. for this jury, you know? And it was just kind of strange to see like the 
the Instagram comment or the internet driven defense kind of play out in a courtroom and how much it did not play well with the jury. Right. Yeah. Cause like, I mean, as somebody who even on, on a lot of days would be doing like real time reactions to what had happened throughout like the earlier part of the day in on trial and everything like that. And I have some degree of guilt about having sort of been duped by certain storylines that were being put out there. And I never really wavered on my belief that the most likely scenario was the Tory Lane shot her in the foot. But there was definitely moments where, you know, certain narratives were kind of being pushed by his team or the media that kind of had me saying things that gave a little bit too much credence to certain things that now to me seem like blatant disinformation that to be honest, he pretty much like masterfully deployed, yeah. you know, like it, yeah. uh, even though he, he didn't ultimately prevail, I, I don't think I've ever seen anyone do a better job of creating just like a cloud of mystery around a situation by putting out so many different narratives, right? Yeah, it, it was interesting to me how focused he was on that. And, and like even right now, the, the statement that he just put out on his Instagram page is so obviously a reaction to that New York Post or New York Daily News, I think it was the New York Post, had an anonymous source saying that, you know, he's scared to death and he's afraid for his life mm. in prison. So the voicemail that he just put out from prison was obviously to, to refute that, just to show that he's And they a created spirit. sort of like an animated phone graphic to use yeah. with it, like the way that they do the lyric visualizers for when artists put out songs and stuff. And it's just like he's shown a dedication to trying to craft the public narrative that you very rarely see where a lot of times when people get into these situations, they just go quiet and they let their legal team handle it and they, yeah. they'll do interviews, but they won't say anything about it. I mean, he was putting out coded messages to the fans, even in his music videos and stuff. It's really stuff that you've like totally. never seen before. Totally, totally. And that was just the, uh, just the, the, the focus on that and the, um, the I almost wonder, there, there's such a disconnect between what he was doing and what was actually going to happen in the courtroom. Because it seems like anybody who was like familiar with, with trials and how things worked, it just, it, it didn't look good for him already. And then all this public relations and, and internet stuff, it's like, it's not going to come into the courtroom. And that's why after the conviction is when I really started feeling like the heat online from all his fans, because the masses had kind of died down and they were still there. But it was just bizarre to me because I'm like, he's been convicted. Like, this is over. Like, mm. all, all the energy that they spent on all this post-conviction stuff should have been put on a better trial because, uh, I mean, I, I I just think he was ill-served by his decision to switch out Sean Hawley and then go with George McDesian at the last minute because mm. he wanted somebody to embrace the, the Kelsey, yeah, the Kelsey Shotter defense. But it's like, this is a really serious case. And I mean, the idea that he, after he was convicted, he wasn't just totally screwed and was going to go to prison for a few years. I mean, mm -hmm. the, he wasn't going to get a new trial. He's not going to get one now. You, you just wonder about, you know, how, how prepared was he for it and how, how clueless are these people about the justice system? Mm. Weird. Yeah. And I mean, the recently I've seen it in the news, I don't know how uh, uh, verified this information was, but the idea that he basically could have pled out to like, what was it, a year or two years? I did. I, so so some, Vlad Soros said four years. And then I heard from a pro, Alex Bott, the prosecutor, said he was pretty sure that they didn't offer a plea on it, but that also he wasn't the prosecutor on it from the very beginning. So I haven't gotten a confirmation on whether there was any kind of plea from Kathy Ta. But then I've also heard from a credible source that it was three years, that mm -hmm. he was offered three years. And, and the idea that he wasn't offered any kind of plea deal, I think, is hard to... Hard to believe, but 
you know, I can see, I mean, the idea of going to prison for three years doesn't sound very fun either, but it's just the the circumstances that he was facing and then what he's facing now. And then I'm, I'm not sure how much of it is puffery and how much of it is just, do they not understand the system? But I saw a TMZ article that said, you know, his, his lawyers are working around the clock to try to get him out or try to do a, an appellate motion over his, his bail pending appeal. And it's like, okay. I mean, in the end, TMZ is just kind of appealing to the dumbest people out there, but like working around the clock, what, what are they doing? He's, it's, he's kind of screwed. They're losing sleep. Like yeah. you want us to believe that they're just not sleeping because they're working so, so hard. What are they doing? So it's, it's like so if they're working around the clock, and that article published two days ago, we should definitely be seeing something filed right now. It's just, I mean, it's just TMZ blowing smoke. But, right. Like yeah. Yes. Uh, earlier today, I was doing the podcast with uh, with my two co-hosts, Brig Baby and Desto Dub, and you know they're not super media obsessed types of guys so they're probably like most of their assumptions about the Tory Lane case are just kind of casual conversations mm-hmm. or they've seen a few videos and they probably haven't even thought about the shit in a few months but I mentioned that I was interviewing you and they both when I said that I believed that yes he shot her in the foot that they, they kind of looked at me as if I was a conspiracy theorist or as if I like they were surprised that I was going along with the mainstream narrative on this, which I mean, I've had the same experience when people realize that I got vaccinated and they're like, or, or when people realize I voted for Joe Biden, where it's like these things that seem extremely logical and rational to me are, are very easily cast in this like extremely suspicious anti-expert light that kind of, and I, I remember, yeah. I remember once like when Trump got arrested or when, when Trump got arrested, well, I guess that has happened as well. When Trump got elected, that there was just like a, a lot of people that I respect saying the bad thing about this is not just the fact that he's president. It's, it's that it's going to normalize lying. Yeah. And, and yes. with Tory Lanez, I feel like I've seen that better than in a different part of society than I've probably ever seen it anywhere else. That like, you know, the, the, the conspiracy mindset has certainly been advanced in hip hop a lot by, the, this whole thing and, and the attacking the messenger too, like the, yeah. the attacking of, of journalists and, and there's kind of a whole crowd that sees this and, and actually thinks that I should be like embarrassed because Tory Lanez insulted me or something. And I just look back at like, like journalists that I admire, uh, a columnist for the Miami Herald, Carl Hyacin on his website actually writes that one of his proudest moments was when a member of the board of commissioners who he'd been writing at, about actually issued a resolution, uh, condemning his work and just thought it was like a real badge of honor. So it's like, I mean, the whole googly eyed bitch thing, the whole him, like just taking such a, a target on me. It, it, it was weird, but it also seemed very Trumpian. Although we mm. should be clear that it's not like attacking journalists began with Trump. I mean, Democrats do it. It's been going on for a long time, but just the whole, instead of focusing on the facts, focus on the person who's presenting the facts and like try to attack them and like demean them. Right. hundred percent. And I mean, calling you that, <laughs> on his part, it really does the opposite of what he might have been trying to to do there. Because to me, as someone who knew Tory Lanez before this and thought he was an asshole, <laughs> but like a tolerable asshole, like yeah. not an asshole who I had a reason to like speak publicly about, yeah. that very much is in the line with the character that I've seen him express throughout this whole trial. And I just, I, that, that was just a very confusing move to me because it's like, I mean, I, I, would, I would hope that we could, could kind of agree especially in a solemn moment after you've been found guilty that to attack the physical appearance of a reporter and to me, a reporter who's mostly been pretty fair to him. 
That's what I've thought. Like the biggest the, the biggest thing that I've noticed is the the attack and the heat really happened after the trial. Because mm-hmm. up until the very moment he was convicted, I think people thought that he could be acquitted. Mm-hmm. And that was they were all reading my reporting too. And then I I, I it might have been afterward because I, I did some candid interviews afterward where I said, Yeah, I thought from the beginning that I thought he'd be found guilty that his <clears throat> his jail call to Kelsey didn't look good. But then also the the post-conviction coverage that I did because his lawyers and, and what he did with his PR campaign and then his motion for new trial, trying to recuse the judge, it was so unusual. And there wasn't really anyone else who was covering it like I was. So I think that like really caught their attention. And so they felt like they needed to somehow discredit me through through that. But it was just kind of funny how they went apart, went, went about doing it. And, and especially at the point uh, where he has his last words in court be that, or some of his last words in court be that. And how verified is that? Because you weren't 100% sure if this happened at first when you tweeted about it, right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't hear it. But one of his fans online who had direct contacts in the courtroom tweeted it out. And that's how I first heard about it. And I was like, okay, so is that is that what he said? It makes sense. Like, And, and I uh, believed it like the second that I saw the tweet, but I wanted to get other confirmation. So I just emailed the DA's office, like Alex Bott and Kathy Ta, and was like, hey, did you guys hear this at all? And Alex Bott's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Several deputies heard him say that. He said it's it, it, conflicting reports on whether he actually said my name. Mm. But the way he was looking over at me and stuff, it's like I, he, he had to have been saying that. Right. The way his fans were kind of celebrating that. And, and I, I think some people were worried that I was going to be upset about it. But other people were just like, you realize this is like, I mean, the, he, he just insists on trying to make me like a, a household name on these hip hop blogs. And Which from your perspective is probably kind of helpful, right? I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I might as well ride the wave. Like it right. was, I was a little like in the beginning, what do I do with this kind of thing? Because I don't want to just be like the hip hop legal reporter. And, I, you know, everyone's always not everyone, but like two people will comment, oh, she's a culture vulture or something. Mm. It's like. And Welcome somebody, to the some, club. Somebody, somebody <laughs> commented, they're like, the, the, the culture is not the courthouse, you know. I cover, as long as you're, you know, sticking to, to legal cases and not, uh, I, I'm not planning to branch out into the latest uh, blue face drama or right, anything like yeah. that. Yeah, but so, if there was yeah. a criminal case, which it seems there almost certainly oh. will be at some point. <laughs> yeah, no, and I have been like, I might be writing about these two sooner than later. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> you seen that baby's hernia? Yeah, I have not seen the photo, but I've yeah. seen it. I uh, got it. It and, is jaw dropping. Uh, and then my, my jaw did jaw- drop. It's just blue face going on Twitter and be like, oh, my, tw- my phone was stolen. My Twitter was hacked. Come on. But I feel like his legal counsel <laughs> counsel might've told them to say that because yeah. they, there's whenever they're using an asset or a, a piece of content or social media in a trial, there's always an attempt to explain away why this might not have actually been real or why this can't <laughs> be uh, you know, evidence in the trial. Yeah. So I feel like him saying that at least it like plants the seed of doubt. So it might not actually be able to be used in a trial because I mean, I guess posting your son's penis is, I mean, it's pretty serious. Yeah. Like, you could imagine charges being pressed about that, right? Yeah, just the other, I was like, I can't believe I know so much about these people. And I actually right. had to go and I Googled Chrisine just to see how old she is. Because I have I have empathy for her. And I liked uh, Tamika Mallory had a nice Instagram post about how just try, try, trying to be helpful for her and just dumping on people in situations like that like just doesn't help. And I was reminded of my aunt actually in Corvallis, Oregon, started a place called Old Mill Center for Children and Families that like aims to help people who are in situations like that, who are completely overwhelmed, have no parenting skills whatsoever. But in the end, like they 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 love their kid and they want to learn how to be good parents. And can we have them 
can we give them resources to try to do this? So I kind of come from a background that's more that than just, oh, let's make social media posts mocking these people and like speculating about the kid crying and stuff. Right. So it's kind of weird to see that stuff play out. And I feel like I've been, especially in the last few months, just because my, my social media algorithms kind of put it all in my face. Mm. So, it, I mean, me, I, myself has just been kind of having a, uh, what do I cover as a as as a reporter with all this newfound newfound fame? But I think the key is to just focus on L.A. cases because there's plenty of celebrity cases going on, and then there's all these interesting federal cases and you know cases that people might not hear much about because the defendants aren't famous, but they're still really interesting. So. Right? How do you uh, feel about? Uh, we've also seen some some sort of celebrity lawyers like our boy Mo, who've kind of taken it upon themselves to. <laughs> you know, fly out to LA and sort of involve themselves in some of these trials. And there's been some wild visual aids to, to, to this uh, effect that have come out, like Mo coming out and delivering the not guilty verdict to the NBA young boy fans. And they're all jumping up and down and screaming. And it, it's kind of wild for people who, you know, grew up throughout the nineties and stuff who saw the legal system as mostly being a pretty boring thing. Yeah. And like, you know, the OJ trial in comparison was pretty tame compared to a lot of this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, like what is that like to sort of witness that? Because he He's kind of doing like the court reporter thing. Oh yeah, from and, a legal and, and I am kicking myself for not covering the NBA young boy. And I, I heard mm. from some friends in the U.S. Attorney's Office that they got their ass kicked on that case, and nobody within the U.S. Attorney's Office like really realized who he was and like how big he was and mm. the lawyers that he had. I mean the the young AUSAs who prosecuted that case. I mean it was just a felon in possession of a firearm charge, so it's not like they had their veterans on it. But mm. apparently they just like walked into a buzzsaw on that. But there, there's so many cases that get, that just fly under the radar that don't get coverage very well. So it's like, yeah, if we can figure out a way to like kind of bring those to life. I mean, w yeah, when was the last time a felon in possession of a firearm case got so much coverage from that? And then I was just thinking about the judge's house arrest order for Kenneth Petty. Mm. I mean, these LA federal judges have like really no scrutiny except for the lawyers who appear in front of them, of course, everybody kind of talks in their own circles, but the lawyers are like ethically bound to not say anything publicly about these cases or about the judges. So you kind of have a duty as a journalist to like try to bring some light to these cases. And and I, and I think the lawyers who go in and, and the law tube crowd is, is interesting and there's definitely a, a, obviously a market for it, but the lawyers I know are way too busy to just be talking on YouTube like that. And it would be seen as like pretty low class and almost unethical to be talking about cases like that. Right. And Mo's monetization scheme long term is that basically he will represent you when you sue your employer for a slip and fall or like an underpaid, uh, you know, overtime case or whatever, which is pretty funny. Like the same way that like an OnlyFans model seeks out attention to drive people back to our OnlyFans. He's seeking attention through these trials, hoping that You'll, he'll be at the front of your mind when you decide that you want to sue Wendy's for not paying you for overtime or whatever. It's an interesting profession, and it's so unregulated, especially like we've seen in California. I mean, there's just so many different types of lawyers. And with you know Tom Girardi from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills crowd, he basically ran the California State Bar for years and was you know very influential on judge elections, and he was a huge crook. Right. And he was ripping off all sorts of people. So just, just the lawyers who spring up and are just like, oh, I'm a lawyer. And I think society still has a big de deference to lawyers. I mean, you want Definitely, to defer yeah. to lawyers. It's, it's, why, it's why you hire them. I mean, and I still hear it. It's like, well, Megan's not a lawyer. It's like, well, yeah, I'd like to think if I was a lawyer, I'd be practicing law, right. not writing about other people who practice 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. But I mean, the one thing that has come up, and I think both me and Vlad and maybe academics have all kind of separately said this about Mo, lawyer for workers, if you're confused with who we're talking about, is that it seems like, at least to our perspective, that he might be dealing with a little bit of audience capture issues where it seems like he kind of takes the side of the rapper more often than not, which seems a little odd in certain cases, like Tory Lanez thing, because it's like, yes, I understand that that is the perspective that is going to be popular with your audience. Yeah. You, know, you got your audience from the rap crowd, not the the battered women's crowd, which <laughs> uh, to the extent that that exists. So it's kind of like it, it, it helps him to represent Tory Lanez because a lot of Tory Lanez fans are just going to click off and stop following you if you yeah. seem to be taking an anti-Tory Lanez stance. But do you think that that's like a real problem in terms of how these trials are being covered? Well, well he just seems so off in some of his perceptions of it. And, and what he would tell people was like the main point of testimony. I mean, in the end, he was like having all those people think that Tory might be acquitted when the chances of him ever being acquitted were like really, really slim, like hung jury maybe. but. Mm. I mean, the chance of any kind of acquittal on that was just like slim to none. So there is just kind of a a, a puffing up of the crowd, and and it's not rooted in informing the public and like the the grassroots of journalism. That's why I mean, I, the mainstream media gets a lot of criticism, and, and rightfully so. Like, there's tons of problems with like East Coast bias and and just the elitism in the mainstream media and what they cover and what they don't cover. But like the grassroots of how you learn to be a reporter, like working at a regional paper like the Spokesman Review and who you call when there's a freeway accident and how you get the information and how you approach calling the victim's family. You just learn like how to approach news stories from like a public standpoint that I don't think a lot of these people have ever even thought about before. You know, it's just kind of like, sensationalizing it and getting clicks and that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, the, the the true crime crowd, I have a lot of complaints about. But even just the fact that it's called true crime. Right. It's like when I was at the Spokesman Review, it was called the crime beat. Well, it was called the public safety beat because it's not like you just write about crime to write about crime. You're trying to answer a broader question of are we safe as a community? Are we prosecuting crime in a way that makes us safer? Not just, hey, look at all this crazy stuff that happened in the local trailer park, you know? I mean, it, it's kind of like taken as a given at, at in the year 2023 that the average American woman has an unquenchable thirst <laughs> for true crime lore. <laughs> Do you find this urge within yourself as somebody who's been doing this professionally since before that kind of became a common meme? I mean, I've always been interested in it. I mean, everybody is kind of interested in like the depths of society. And remember, my editor at the Spokesman Review told me that a lot of people, when they read about crime, they're reading about it because they're like, they're like, oh, this could have happened to me. They're right, like, yeah. I, I could be. And and when when really 
most of the crime when you get into it, it's like actually that couldn't have been you. And like unless you're out like looking for a fight, looking to score a bag of dope or looking to pick up a prostitute, your chances of being a victim of violent crime in this country are like slim to none. Mm. But just the way the Internet is and kind of the sensationalism of all these cases, I think people have kind of lost sight of that. And there's a, a perception in society that crime is is going up. And I think there's been an uptick in the last few years, but it's still that classic like 20 or 30 years, it's actually gone like way down. And then, uh, uh, and I noticed this with the hip hop world too, that the death of like uh, the one place where you get all sorts of news, because the Mm -hmm. benefit of like a newspaper is all this other news is just in your face and you can't avoid it. Whereas, you know, if you only get your news from the shade room or you only get your news from no jumper, there's just a lot of different perspectives that you're missing out on. And then the way the YouTubers kind of compete with each other, it becomes like competition instead of everyone realizing that, you know, back in the heyday, we would all work at the same newspaper and we would all go out at night and get drunk and people would hook up with each other or something. Mm-hmm. But instead it's like a big rivalry for but a lot of people would say that, and I, I disagree with it quite often, that the, the new uh, marketplace of ideas that we exist in is better because, you know, heterodox uh, opinions are allowed to exist and be discussed. But I think what you see way more of is just non-experts acting like experts when it comes to everything from like, I mean, every day I log into Twitter and I see a bunch of Republican commentators who don't seem like they have any clue what they're talking about telling me how fucked up Biden is when it comes to Ukraine or whatever. And it's yeah. just like the, the the experts have kind of been pushed out of the discourse for not being exciting enough quite often. Yeah, it's like nerdy to be smart and and it's uncool to be smart and nerdy. And and it's such a siloed effect in social media. And, and really this whole thing, especially with just all the vitriol online in the past, Past a few months, I'm like, I just need to sign off of there, you know, instead mm. of like living on social media, it's like try to go out in the real world. And, like, Tweet and exit out of the app. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's something tough to pull off. Exactly. I was thinking about, um, I, I want to get back up to Yosemite National Park if I can. I'd done like a big national park tour in 2020, but I was thinking about when I first started going up there, I was reading all about the park and I read an article and I think the Fresno Bee about a guy who took troubled kids to Yosemite National Park and he said that he would take them up to Glacier Point where there's like a view of the whole park. You've got like the valley and Half Dome and the Mist Trail, the the waterfalls that lead up to Half Dome and then Yosemite Falls over there and he'd show it to him and just be like, this is it. Like, this is the world. Like, you can do what you want with it. And it's like, Think about all the people who saw this in the very beginning, like hundreds and thousands of years ago and decided, like, we're going to climb to the top of Half Dome. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, can you imagine a counselor for troubled teens opening up a web browser and going to, like, a message board on LipstickAlley.com and being like, this is it, guys. This is the world. <laughs> this is what's out there. It's like, yeah, we got to turn off the Internet and go outside more, you know? Yeah, I was having that yeah. feeling when I was in uh, Hawaii on vacation recently and just, like, being on the beach and just thinking – what like what is it about me that makes me crave doing these podcasts and being and doing business on a day-to-day basis instead of just like hanging out on the beach because a lot of these people you don't really live in Hawaii unless you kind of want to hang out on the beach in the sun yeah quite often and a lot of those people seem just blatantly a lot happier than the vast majority of people that I spend time yeah. around yeah and uh you know granted like most people don't really have that choice to go hang out on the beach but no. it's interesting <laughs> to me that so few people do choose to kind of make 
that their life. Yeah. 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 And you just kind of get used to, and, and, and I've fallen into it in the last eight months or so, just there's so much internet going on, so many cases to cover and you're not getting out as much, but you're, you're much happier if you kind of break away from that a little bit and the, just realize the, the real world exists elsewhere. And I think the Tory Lanez case is such a good example of that because I mean, he was so gassed up on the Instagram comments and so were so many of his supporters. And, and still to this day, just some of the comments I get, I'm like, they, God, they don't realize that the trial ended on December 23rd. You know? Right. It's weird. Damn. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, cause that makes me think about the fact that I always was making an attempt to have conversations about the Tory Lanez case in a, in a respectful way in the sense that I didn't want to throw him under the bus, even though I felt like he was guilty and I didn't want to, you know, like necessarily buy into narratives that I felt like he was putting out there unfairly. But once we had talked about it on the show a couple of times, I got a DM from him after not talking to him for a few years. That was basically just like, fuck you, you fucking bitch. And just like attacking me, even though I felt like I was really attempting to speak fairly when his name would come up and everything. Yeah. And he fully unloaded about me and I'm looking at my DMs like, bro, you have such bigger things to be worried about. Like the fact that yeah. I'm even entering your mind right now is insane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely innocent until proven guilty. I mean, he, and, until he was convicted, you know, he, I mean, and, and even after he's convicted, everybody deserves to be treated fairly, but it, it seems like his, his idea of it, or he's just so used to the gaslighting that was going on before that, that afterward, I mean, his, his stuff about how the DNA was like so crucial in his conviction. That's such bullshit. No, mm. it wasn't. The prosecutors went up there and told the jury that they couldn't say one way or the other whether his DNA was on the gun or not. It's like, in the end, that was favorable for Tory, And that's what Sean Hawley said from the very beginning. And if there's one conversation in this whole thing that I wish I could be a fly on the wall for, it's the conversation that Sean Hawley references in her email to him before the trial where she tells him that she doesn't think the Kelsey defense is a viable strategy. And if he wants to pursue that defense, he should check with George to see if George is willing to do it. But she says, you know, at, per our discussion on Saturday, I'm like, I wonder what that discussion was like between Tory Lanes and Sean Hawley, who's a very experienced criminal defense attorney. And if she was telling him that blaming Megan's best friend for shooting her wasn't good, a good strategy, it's like she had a point. And Bias has not come out and said anything about, you know, the Kelsey shot her defense, but he has said things about the misogynistic stuff that came out in trial and the whole idea that the jury was being told that Tory was going back and forth between, you know, Megan and Kylie Jenner at the pool. He's like, none of that should have been in the trial at all. None of that was relevant. And it's like, well, it was Tory's own lawyer who was presenting that. So, so I think, like, in retrospect, especially Baez is experienced enough with jury trials enough that I think his approach would have been totally different. But the question is, would, would Tory have allowed that? And would, have, would his ego have allowed that? Because it seems like that's what happened with, with him and Holly was uh, they just had a huge disagreement about it. So he was able to get George to come in and, and kind of be a yes guy for him. And so you think his first lawyer just didn't want to fuck up her own credibility by attempting to blame this on Kelsey because it just probably would have looked so absurd. Credibility, but then also just the idea of that just not being a good, like that could be a defense that 
assures his conviction because you're almost putting a burden of proof on the defense when you do that. You never want the defense to have to prove more than they have to. Mm -hmm. And when instead of just leaving it open ended and kind of making the jurors think that it could have been the driver, it could have been Kelsey. We just don't know because the investigation was so sloppy and there was such a rush to investigate to convict Tory. They just put it all on Kelsey. So it's like so if the jury doesn't think it's Kelsey, you're kind of screwed. Right. You're like creating this extra burden of proof that like almost doesn't even need to be there. Did you walk away from this thinking that Kelsey was in any way guilty or culpable of anything? There's definitely something involving and, and I think the prosecutors have said the bribery that I, I, I need to watch that HBO Max video that came out. But I think Alex Bott says in there that that Tory that Tory bribed her, that they were they were actually wanted to amend the charges during trial to add a bribery charge against Tory, but the judge wouldn't allow it. So, and I think that has to do with Kelsey. So her pleading the wanting her pleading the fifth and then getting immunity, I think it all had to do with, with the bribery and and if there were any kind of payments involving that. But the thing that trips me up with that is if she was bribed, she like completely breached their contract or something when she went into that prosecutor's interview and told them everything in September. I mean, have, you've probably heard. But that it felt like she got bribed later on, right? It it could have been, but that's a pretty short window though, because it was like September 2022 when she did the interview, and then December 2022 was the trial. Right. So if if the bribery happened before then, she still went in and and told prosecutors everything. Right. So another weird thing about it though is that. I've never met Meg, and I don't know what kind of person she is, but it does feel like she has kind of like aggressively fallen out with a lot of people in a relatively short period of time, Kelsey being one of them. And then even like little things like like the the way that like Drake just kind of like recently sort of dismissed her on stage. Yeah. Little things like that. And I, I even remember one episode of this podcast, Joe Budden just talking about how he believed that she was a shitty person. And yet and just little things like that, that like I definitely still think she was the victim of this attack. But it does feel like something about her, like because publicly her personality comes off like she's America's sweetheart, like yeah. very kind of hard to find yeah. Her, her bad behavior that makes people dislike her. But then I am kind of surprised from time to time to see the amount of people who seem like they do kind of turn on her over time. I, I, I've always just kind of seen it as just, I mean, siding with Tori, being upset that Tori's in prison. But then her whole fallout with Kelsey, I just, th- I thought it was really sad when I like was watching the trial and I realized that they were, used to be best friends and really good friends. And then after the shooting, they're not friends anymore. And especially in uh, Kelsey's interview with the prosecutor, she's so focused on Megan's behavior and kind of the sliding that happened. But if you just think of the situation that Megan was in at the time, like I remember when she was on the stand, she was like, and I was just at the point where I was getting so famous, you know, and she was like on the brink of all this stuff. And then this happened. So you can kind of see how she'd want to like, like circle the wagons around her. And I guess it's, I mean, on the one hand, it's surprising that Kelsey wouldn't be like, in that wagon circle with her, if they've been friends for so long, but just all the drama of what happened. And I, I, I thought it was sad. And I, I, I don't know. I, there were, there were so many aspects at play there that I never was just like, Oh, well she just must be a bad person. I was like, this must be so stressful for her. If you had a friend and that friend one night while you guys were out partying or whatever, got shot by her boyfriend or a guy she was seeing at the time, I would just feel like that experience would bond you to her in such a way that it would take so much to take, to drive you guys apart because you just witnessed and were a part of like her 
dealing with one of the most horrific things you could deal with. Yeah. It's just kind of hard to imagine the circumstances in which you would just like turn your back on her. Right. I, I remember watching the trial and thinking that like the hip hop industry had to have played into this. Like Megan's emerging, uh, emerging fame and mm. just the people around her and, and all the drama online had to have been a big part of it too. Cause that's one thing I've really noticed in the last eight or nine months is just how much that drama like drives everything and how people are like so fixated and, and, and noticing it. So if, if Megan had, if, if Megan felt like that there were rumors going around or, or something, you know, it, it just feels like it was just a big communication problem between those two. And, mm. and I've always just been like, I, I hope that they can somehow like someday like work things out. Cause I just remember as somebody who didn't know anything about the case and, and seeing them testify, I was like, those two seem like they have a lot in common. Mm. I can see why they were really good friends. I just thought it was sad what happened. I wonder if we'll ever get to hear Kelsey, like bear her soul and tell us what really happened. Maybe a book. I, I almost think, yeah, but I almost think her interview with prosecutors was almost her right. bearing her soul, but it, it doesn't explain like exactly what happened between her and Megan, but you can just feel like, like the hurt in her voice and kind of the, the, like, she just doesn't understand this and how she's so fixated on, on what Megan did or what Megan didn't do. But it's like, I can just see how somebody who's already a little overwhelmed at like this emerging fame that they're having, getting put in a situation like that and just being like, I mean, you almost just shut down to everyone, you know? Right. I remember yeah. somebody submitting one of her music videos, probably her label or, or maybe her to my live stream in 2018 and just thinking like, oh, like she's got some talent. Like, you know, she seems all right. I wasn't exact. I wasn't blown away to the point where I, what I should have done is I should have dropped everything and been like, she's a star. She's going to be fucking huge. Yeah. But just for, for her to go from that in 2018 to 2020, just partying with the Kardashians is a pretty fucking big deal. Yeah. Just dating or, or hooking up with or, or having anything going on with Tory Lanez, that would be a pretty big deal to any normal person. And then for her to end up in this situation, and th that is like when you really kind of realize the cruelty of the whole situation is the extent to which she dealt with so much negative publicity and, and kind of became this villain-esque character for a period of time from a situation that basically had nothing to do. It wasn't her fault at all. Yeah. It's really yeah. sad. Yeah, and I can uh, – uh, from a mainstream standpoint, though, uh, I, I think that it it shows how much how much more mainstream appeal she has than him, though. Because as somebody who tangentially listens to hip-hop and knows, like, the mainstream stuff but isn't involved in all the drama, I mean, I knew who she was, but I, I had never heard of him. And mm -hmm. I think that's how it is with, like, a lot of mainstream people. Like, I'm not sure if mainstream society really, like, takes Tory Lanez seriously. But yeah. I think they do take Megan the Stallion seriously, although you're not going to hear her music everywhere because it's like, you know, hey, eat my ass or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is very talented. From my objective point of view, he's very, very talented as a, as a singer slash rapper. But at the same time, his personality does, doesn't really necessarily ooze the charisma that would necessarily take him to the place of being a Drake who's always yeah. going to be the number one person he's compared to because of yeah. where he's from and everything. And I mean, they hated each other for a significant chunk of his career up until yeah. a few years ago or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's wild. I, I will say just to, to calm the masses if they're out there that one of the more boring debates that breaks out in my replies is like, who was more successful? And it's like them comparing their Spotify listens or something. It's like, can we just agree that they were both successful in their own, right? Yeah. And I mean, 
Yeah, for at least this time period, she's clearly been dramatically more successful. I mean, I don't yeah. like record sales wise and stuff. She hasn't maybe lived up to some of the hype, but I, I mean, she's a beloved figure. Although I wonder to what extent the Tory thing kind of damaged a lot of that, because for sure, for like the rapper rapper crowd, it probably damaged that a lot. But it, I think in a more mainstream sense, like she's very beloved. Yeah, yeah, I, I liked her uh, NPR Tiny Desk series. I mean, I'd, I'd heard some of her songs before, but I listened to her Tiny Desk uh, concert a while back and was like, wow, this is awesome. Like, oh, wow. how talented she I'm ashamed is. of the extent to which I enjoy the Tiny Desk series. Me and my girl and my, my kid watch the Post Malone one all the time. Oh, nice, It nice. sounds way better than those same songs sound yeah. on Spotify. Gosh, you know, I just looked up a case of his, and actually I, I heard about it from you guys. Um, the, the girl, his ex-girlfriend who was trying to get some kind of settlement or something departure settlement from him and the uh the law firm actually sued her really? and then the law firm went and filed something in court that revealed some personal information about her that she's now upset about and as somebody who's covered lawyers and is just kind of on the lawyer beat i was like that's so appalling by the lawyers really i went and looked at the court documents too i mean just lawyers suing their old clients like i mean even if you have a case, it just seems like that is such bad form to a lawyer to s turn around and sue their client, especially when your client is like, I don't know how old she is, but she's got to be in her like late 20s or early 30s. You right. sue her because she settled privately with her ex-boyfriend and you want a piece of her money. Do you think there's anything unique about the Tory Lanez case in it being a hip hop thing? Because when I think about the um, Johnny Depp thing and having watched that Netflix series about that and stuff, I wasn't super paying attention to that while it was happening, but... They do seem sort of eerily similar, although obviously the Johnny Depp thing was quite a bit less serious. I, I think there was so much like the, the misogynistic crowd is just like so eager to hop onto a case if they think a woman is lying. Right. You know, oh, this, you know, a woman scorned and this poor guy is being, you know, innocent, you know, but civil cases are just so much different than than criminal cases that I just think this one, I'm, I'm not sure it, it really could play out as, as some kind of controversy when... Uh, one, one thing I, I I wish we could talk to the jury. If any if any Tory Lanez jurors are watching this, I'd love to talk to you and give you anonymity on it. But mm. I can imagine them not really wanting to come forward. But everyone just forgets that there were twelve people who like heard everything and debated amongst themselves for seven hours and then came out and convicted him like pretty swiftly, like right. a solid conviction. What was like the demographic of the jury? I, I wasn't. I don't know if I ever saw him, but gosh, off the top of my head, it was a lot of women. Head. It was, I think it was like seven or eight women and uh, an older, older black woman, an older black man. Uh, there was like three or four white people. The, the jury foreman kind of had a gamer vibe to him. He was like some nerdy looking white guy in his, in his 20s. Have you seen Jury Duty? No, I oh haven't. I've God. heard it. You know about it? No, I've oh, heard it's, it's some, amazing. Some jurors were talking about it in a jury pool. I saw it. That was the best day. two yeah. or three days of my life was watching that shit. But he becomes the foreman at a certain yeah. point. It's pretty hilarious. Okay. Um. So you, what's this thing about the Nicki Minaj thing? You, you, oh, yeah. they, they announced the, or you broke the news of Nicki's husband being placed on on twenty days house arrest. Well, some some people had already tweeted it, and that's actually how I saw it. Is some people had like added me on the replies, being like, "Hey, did you see this order about Kenneth Petty?" And when I saw it, I was like, "Oh yeah, that's right up my alley. That's Judge Fitzgerald. That's his signature right there." Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, I didn't think it warranted like a story that I would write up and send out to my email list, but. It's like I can take a screenshot of that and tweet it out and didn't expect it to get all the attention that it did. But 
you know, I think people people appreciate the authoritative tone and the the explanation of exactly what it is. But yeah, I mean, like everyone, I had followed the uh, videos and the the drama between. It's what started at the Video Music Awards and then Offset Cinema DM and then the video of Kenneth Petty out on the street in New York City like looking for Offset and then Offset responded by filming himself like getting off a jet right. or something. And I was like, you know, my algorithm, it just puts it right in my face. Would you say that you're genuinely interested in this or is this stuff that you're just kind of paying attention to because it seems like it might turn into a case or a criminal thing at a certain point? Somewhat interested in it because I, especially after covering Cardi B and just seeing her in person, I have kind of an interest in her, in her life. So I'm just kind of somewhat interested in Offset too. But I was also like, how do I change my algorithm? So every time I go onto social media, I don't see all this stuff. Like, right. I don't care. And I was just amazed that people were like, I mean, it was the whole weekend news cycle of, like, the YouTubers trying to update on that. It was, like, the latest Blueface and Crisian. But then, yeah. I, then I saw the order, and I'm like, okay, this is federal court in L.A. And I, I at the time, I didn't realize or remember that he had been put on probation. But, yeah, being on federal probation is a pretty big deal. So Right. I mean, my main takeaway from that is just, like, Nicki Minaj needs some people that, around her to tell her how she looks. Because she's just not like even take take the being a woman out of the situation. If you're Jay Z and you're standing outside, you know, yapping in your phone, talking about how tough you are, it's just not gonna come off good. And granted, she didn't do that, but she was like very much co-signing it. And like, you know, she's at Queen Radio, Queen B Radio, whatever, with like a bunch of goons in the room and stuff. And yeah. it's just like. You know, when you're a woman at your age, nobody wants to see you putting out this this sort of image. And even as yeah. a guy, like nobody wants to see this, especially when you're at the top of the game. And Cardi B and Offset are doing a good job of looking kind of unbothered and just sort of being, you know, happy and successful together. Yeah. And for some reason, Nicki Minaj is just full of this like anger and maybe it's kind of working in terms of pushing the album but i feel like most people are kind of laughing at her well and, and behind the scenes people had to have been like okay you don't want to go to court for this because it's important to note that kenneth and his lawyer just agreed to the whole thing they waived an appearance and were like yeah put me on house arrest for up to really they just took days. that 120 days like yeah. nothing huh yeah so it must have been you know some kind of pr stuff in mind there i mean if that got a media attention imagine how much media attention it would get if he actually had to had to go to court. He's probably not dying for people to pay more attention to his initial charges and everything. Because yeah. I have seen a lot of renewed interest in that. And even yeah. today, I've seen pictures, people posting pictures of leaked photos of his victim, allegedly, yeah. from whatever. And, and the whole idea that people were laughing at him. I mean, just objectively speaking, like from a factual standpoint, when people say that this was a grown man who was grounded and put on timeout, it's like, yeah. Right. That's that's an accurate way to describe it. I mean, it's a little flippant and maybe not like a professional journalistic way to describe it. But yeah, I mean, he got put on timeout. And it's weird, too, because it's like <laughs> throughout the course of being married to Nicki Minaj, I'm sure that he has had conversations had with him that are like, you're not allowed to do this on social media or this is a bad look. Because he's always been like very, very quiet on social yeah. media. And then all of a sudden you just see him doing something that him basically being like a street thug from New York City. <laughs> yeah seems like pretty much like within his realm of shit that he would be like, I feel like him making that video. The more interesting thing is the fact that he hasn't made videos like that before, because that kind of seems like the real him. Yeah. And now like, you're just seeing him sort of like give into his urges and, and you wonder to what extent Nicki Minaj sort of said, like, it's okay for you to go act like a tough guy in front of the, <laughs> the building or whatever, because it seems like he probably wouldn't have done, done it if 
he if it was going to make her angry. Yeah, yeah, and I I, I was kind of confused at it at first. I'm like, so do they think that Offset is just like around the corner? Or something? <laughs> and and then the video. I mean, objectively speaking, it is pretty hilarious that Offset was actually like on some private jet going to go see Deion Sanders or something when that happened. It's yeah, like, yeah, you're not going to find me on the street corner here. But yeah, yeah, just that it it, it it's opened me up to the whole world of. Like celebrity gossip bleeding into like a court case or something. Right. So for somebody like me, I heard years ago, like, oh, Danny Masterson is being charged with some sexual assault or rape and didn't really think much of it. And then all of it comes out that he got how many uh, years? 30. 30. 30. And it's 30 to life. So that means... He's eligible for parole after 30 years. Right. And it actually could be uh, a little bit sooner because he, he's 47. And apparently there's a elderly release program, compassionate release. So by the time he's like 72 or something, he might be able to petition for release because so he's so old. What <laughs> was it about this trial that got him such an unbelievable sentence? Because typically when you hear about people being convicted of rape charges and stuff, you hear about them getting five years or something more like yeah. that and not 30. It would depend on like what the actual rape charge was, but this was first degree forcible rape, which was like the most serious. And it 20 years ago, but because there were multiple counts, uh, the statute of limitations didn't apply. Really? So it was multi, yeah, enhancing circumstance of multiple victims and two counts of forcible rape, and each one carries 15 years to life. So like everyone who was in the press row who was covering it thought that he would get. 30 years. I mean, we originally thought it was 45 because it was three charges, but he was only convicted on two. How much evidence was there? Like, was there anything in particular that really stood out to you that really made it seem like a sure thing he was going to get the, found guilty? The biggest thing was uh, 2004, one of his victims did report it to the police. So there's, there's kind of this uh, narrative that it took them forever to report it and they kind of conspired together at the end. But one of them definitely reported it in 2004. And then there was actually a non-disclosure agreement that she signed with Danny and his lawyer. And he, I think Danny paid like 300 or almost $500,000 or something. And the judge cited that too at sentencing. Just and said, used that against him. Yeah. Said that was a lot of money to pay for an incident that apparently, you know, supposedly didn't happen. Mm. And then also the victims all testified, but they each had somebody that they told uh, about, they, they told that they'd reported the rape to uh, earlier, like right after it happened. So they had like corroborating witnesses through that. But one interesting angle of it though, is uh, the police department, the LA police department's like relationship with Scientology, because it was, it was a question of how, how could she have reported this in 2004? And it kind of just got buried and that hasn't been exposed really well, but there's all these there's all this talk about the relationship that the Church of Scientology has with LAPD and especially the Hollywood precinct, but there wasn't much urgency to their investigation in 2004. There were like all these kind of problems with it. And, and, and so they think that the Church of Scientology might have some sway over the police department, huh? Yeah, yeah. Just how the, the, their big presence in Hollywood, they've got so much money. And it's funny because, I mean, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to take the Church of Scientology seriously. I'm I mean, in that everybody boat, thinks for sure, yeah. Like, and, yeah. and if you're on uh, uh, Twitter, there's a account, Film the Police LA. I don't know if you ever okay. see him, but he was filming the police in LA. And he was, uh, he has a whole explanation about how he had to stand 
right in front of the Scientology building door to get everyone in at the angle that he needed to get in. But one of the security guards said something to him, and this was a few months ago. So he's just been kind of on a war against Scientology ever since. Like when he's around their building, he'll film them and just make fun of them and, you know, urge people not to talk to him. You know, don't go there. It's a cult. So right. it seems like that's their like, like that's the most social media you see about him. I mean, nobody takes them seriously at all. I drive by a giant Church of Scientology <laughs> building every day, and occasionally I see people walking out of there, and I'm just staring at them, wondering yeah. what the fuck they're doing with their yeah. life, that this, this is what they're doing. They're, like, overtly weird, but they have tons of money. Yeah. And, like, they, the Danny Masterson case, there's a civil case against him. One, his ex-girlfriend, who was one of the victims, uh, filed a lawsuit and actually went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court because mm-hmm. – they were trying. The church is trying to say that she signed an arbitration agreement as a church member, so she's not allowed to sue them. It all has to go through private arbitration, and a- appellate court ruled against them. And the uh, Church of Scientology actually hired Winston Strawn, which is like a big time law firm, and they petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court. It didn't go anywhere, but they've got all these connections to judges and stuff too. Like, cause mm. I mean, they're they're stacked legally, so they've got some of the top. Uh, lawyers in LA have worked for him before. So when lawsuits against Church of Scientology get filed, actually it just happened. Leah uh, Remini's lawsuit was originally assigned to a judge who then recused herself, and it's because her husband used to do legal work for the church. And Danny Masterson is still in good standings with the Church of Scientology, as as far as you know? Yeah, it's interesting to see how they're going to deal with the fallout from this, because legally they've circled the wagons around him, and he's a second-generation member, too. His mom was... Mm had all their kids born into it. That sounds like he's a child abuse survivor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, and I have empathy for people who, who yeah. grew up in it. There's a, a, a YouTube channel that's pretty big, a Growing Up in Scientology, but he has a big channel about that. And he ha- he runs a group to try to help people like get out of it. And Yeah, right. growing up in a cult like that. No, I've weird. seen some fucking great YouTube content, yeah. like sort of uh, pointing out moments and in interviews of where like, uh, you know, where... Scientology people will not say the things that they actually believe or kind of dance around yeah. answering because once you fully get into the shit they just start telling you about all this crazy intergalactic shit that you then have to deny yeah. publicly yeah well and I've heard I've, I've heard that Danny hasn't even done all that much like education or reading yeah, yeah I mean maybe he has but there's like so many levels of Scientology that he's like not even close to it it's just because he's a, a movie star and an actor he was he's you know, one of their protected members. So when we saw Ashton Kutcher and Mina Kulis, when they made these character reference videos, basically, and they then were exposed to the public and they ended up having to, you know, basically recant their statements or offer this big ass apology and everything, them making those videos and assuming that they would never be released to the public is that as ordinary as they said it was? Or it was it was letters. Yeah, they they wrote letters and then oh, they letters, did the, right, the yeah. videos apologizing, Video apologizing for right. afterward. But but yeah, and I'm I'm actually working on a story on that right now. It should be out in a couple of days on character reference letters cuz yeah, they're completely common. And I talked to a couple of defense attorneys were like it's really unfair that they were like globally skewered for writing those letters cuz the letters are so common, but uh yeah, I think there's something to be said for the tone deafness of them when they're read by the victims and you just kind of compare what they're saying in those letters to what the facts of the case are. Mm. But one thing I did was just looked up some like federal 
sex crimes defendants who have been sentenced in the last couple of months and pulled up their uh, reference, their, their character reference letters because they're not famous, so their cases didn't get any coverage at all. But it's, the letters are the same exact thing. I mean, it's this guy who just got sentenced for 15 years for possession of child porn, and his uncle writes a letter on his law firm letterhead talking about some positive experience in basketball like 20 years ago. The guy's guy's aunt writes a letter saying that she can get him a job in maintenance at Cornell University. Wow. I, I mean, it's like the public, just the outrage cycle of the public, you know, they freak out about Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis. And, yeah. and you know, I mean, it, it, it's something to be said about mainstream media not conveying how common that that is. But also maybe it just says something about the disconnect between the court system and the public that – the public can see something like that and just be completely appalled. Right. And then lawyers see it and they're like, oh, it happens all the time. And it's the, like, and, okay, well, maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, and the memory of people is so short that I can almost imagine this exact same thing happening in a year or two. And the, the information yeah. landscape is so fragmented that this exact same thing could happen in hip-hop. Yeah. And the vast majority of people are not paying attention to Danny Masterson and Mila Kunis, so they're not going to necessarily remember that we just went through this exact yeah. thing, right? Yeah, one, one thing I always bring up is uh, Cory Booker. This senator uh, wrote a character reference letter for Elizabeth Holmes. And that's not quite as scandalous because, I mean, Elizabeth Holmes wasn't convicted of forcible rape or mm -hmm. shooting somebody, but she was convicted of a pretty big fraud that ripped off a ton of people. And she's kind of just seen as this huge sham. And yeah, Cory Booker wrote a letter. I mean, the, the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee writes a letter to a federal judge. Right. That's kind of a big deal. But it, I feel like that's yeah. not going to hit the same nerve that the sexual assault thing does. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then as, especially the fact that Ashton was uh, on, had that organization. That they booted Johnson's. them out of, I guess. Yeah. 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 Just the hypocrisy of that was, was, but yeah, the story I'm doing, I just said, let's just look up all the cases recently and pull up the character reference letters and just do a story all about that just mm. to show how common it is. Right. So I'm super interested in how this ASAP Rocky trial oh, might yeah. proceed. I have had conversations with ASAP Rally, formerly ASAP yeah. Rally. Is that the one who's shot? Yeah. yeah. And actually, the last time I spoke to him, because there's a video of yeah. the shooting taking place. Yeah. And when I talked to him, he basically said, like, yeah, nobody gets to see the video until the trial or whatever. Okay. And I said, if you show me. I promise I won't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did not work. Yeah. He left me on red on that one. Yeah. But I mean, this is pretty insane because we are talking about somebody who's not only like a A-lister in hip hop, yeah. but also has produced multiple children with Rihanna, yeah. one of the biggest stars oh, yeah. in the world. So how how deep into this are you and how close are you paying attention to it? I What we just talked about is all I know. Okay. And, and I'm very skeptical of like, is this actually going to happen? Because especially the, the posture of this case just seems so much different than the Tory Lanez case that it seems like he's being at advised by smarter people. Mm -hmm. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he takes some kind of deal or some, there's some kind of easy plea deal and it never goes to trial. But it sounds like you, you know more about it than me if you've actually talked to the victim. And is he not, if he doesn't want there to be any kind of deal and he's willing to testify, I mean, I hope there's a trial just from a journalist standpoint. I mean, he hasn't indicated to me when I talked to Relly that there's been any attempt to reconcile by Rocky. Because okay. you would think that the first thing that you would want to do after you shoot somebody in the hand or whatever is that you would want to start trying to bring the temperature down and yeah. maybe try to soothe things over, at least because that could maybe be a possibility. That was never probably a possibility. Well, actually, you did see Tory Lanez calling Kelsey and basically trying to do just that of like, you know, yeah. he was trying to soothe things over so that maybe she wouldn't want to uh, speak to the cops or whatever. But yeah, from from my brief conversations with him, it sounds like, you know, this pretty much happened how that happened. And there hasn't been an attempt by his legal team to 
but the newest development is that Rocky's team is suing him oh. for defamation because okay. of what he said, which is oh. kind of hard to imagine because it's not like yeah. he was going to be able to get through this trial without defaming yeah. him if he is saying he, in fact, shot a loaded gun at him. Well, and that's a sign that, yeah, there's not going to be any kind of plea deal. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that'll be great. It was supposed, I think it was scheduled sometime in August, but now it's November 8th, the preliminary hearing, which if that actually goes, that'll be really big. I mean, it happened in Tory Lanez's case and it got a lot of coverage, but that's when they air out all the evidence. Like, we'll probably see the video then because the right. judge is going to decide, like, whether there's enough to take it to the jury. So if that actually happens, it'll be a big story and it'll be coming up. But I'm just like... I'm skeptical because stuff always pleads and, you know, everything gets delayed. But and it just sounds crazy because it's not a rapper that anybody would expect to ever have heard about shooting someone. Really? And Yeah, I mean, he's just not he's, – he's been famous since 2011 and his, yeah. his reputation was never that he was a gangster or anything like that. You yeah. would never – you've never seen him with a gun. You've never thought that he would shoot somebody at this point in his career, yeah. especially when he's, you know, got all this other stuff going on. Uh, you always kind of – the relationship with all the other ASAP members has been pretty much strained since yeah. the very beginning. But yeah, I mean, if I actually get to see a video of ASAP Rocky shooting a gun at somebody, my jaw is probably not going to leave the floor for a few <laughs> days. I have nothing against them, but yeah. I also just kind of hate the idea of celebrities being able to get away with the worst behavior because of the fact that they're celebrities, because so many people yeah. are just going to, that. that's kind of what I got from my conversation with Relly when I talked to him about it is that He's just of the perspective that Rocky treats everybody in his life like total shit and that they all just deal with it because they're all trying to get something from him. And uh, yeah, I don't know. There's a little part of me that's like, OK, he should get what he deserves in this yeah. whole thing. The, the one person I talked to about this a, a short while ago who does PR for situations like that was like, I wouldn't be surprised if that settles before. I mean, if you just see the photo blitz that he's on right now, you mm. know young stay-at-home dad kind of thing, doting father, like the photos of him and Rihanna that are coming out. Like his PR team or his legal team has to be working on something, but, but you know, maybe not. And maybe November 8th will happen and there's his preliminary hearing and then there'll be a trial. So, yeah, yeah that'd be great. I mean, they always say reporters should vote you vote your job on things right so right um, yeah you definitely want there to be a trial yeah it is kind of weird to be in the media which we both are to some extent and you, there's a little part of your brain that you don't want to really like formally acknowledge that is gets kind of happy when a crazy shooting between two famous rappers happens because <laughs> it's like well this is a lot of stuff for us to talk about for the next couple of years yeah yeah and right now it's kind of quiet i mean the asap rocky might be the next biggest thing mm. there's that you know, post Malone lawsuit, but civil cases are always just like kind of harder it can kind of weirder to cover than criminal cases. Cause especially with civil cases, I feel like it's so much the lawyers personalities involved and lawyers kind of at each other. So criminal cases are really where it's at. But uh, one, one big one that's coming up is early next year in federal court, LA federal court, it'll be the uh, Mexican mafia guys who were accused of running the drug run in the jail, the LA oh, really? County jail, like Fox Landa Rodriguez is, a full-fledged Mexican mafia member who's going on trial. And then there were some younger, like, lower-ranking, like, Serenos who were under him who have been caught up in it. But one of his co-defendants is a lawyer. Actually, uh, uh, he was on trial last year, and it was a hung jury. But he's a lawyer for the Mexican mafia, and he's accused of, like, drug possession and, uh, like, running secret notes between the state prisons and like supermax in Colorado. Cause all these Mexican mafia members are locked up and can't have contact with any, anybody, but they need to make like crucial governing decisions about like who to kill. Mm -hmm. So they need somebody to like pass messages between the state prisons. And 
Yeah, I mean, that is one world that I would probably be pretty cautious in discussing on the internet because that's one thing I've gleaned from having met a lot of gangsters is that there's just a level of fear when it comes to these Mexican gangs that I just don't see it from any other part of public criminal life like yeah people yeah. just do not want to talk about them ever that's why you don't really hear about it like matthew orm says orm said that the la times has done a lot of really great like it's almost like a netflix series coverage of it but these trials will come up maybe once every like few years or so and it gives like kind of an inside look at it but they tried just the uh lawyer uh last fall and it was a hung jury actually they almost acquitted him so they're going to try them all together mm. uh early next year but i think things like that go on a lot in la that don't get a lot of coverage, but right. yeah, like you said, there's, there's sensitive topics to, 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 to discuss on, to discuss there. Right. So the, the Johnny Depp trial took place in Delaware, right? Where they, it's, uh, is that it? It was Virginia. Virginia, yeah. right. Where it is okay, where they can film trials and broadcast on TV and everything like that. LA is not like that. It's not an option for any trial. It, it depends on the judge. Oh, like okay. it, cause they did have, what was the last one that was, um, was it Robert Blake or there was some media coverage recently. And then like, like Nipsey hustle, they didn't allow filming in the courtroom, but they did have cameras in the courtroom for, for I think the guilt or the sentencing for it. I mean, I remember seeing some photos there, so it just completely depends on the judge. But I think a lot of courts are getting really wary of allowing any kind of streaming just because of the monetization that's going on mm. from it and just kind of how chaotic. Oh, that's a good it. point too. If yeah. there's random YouTube channels who are able to make hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. by the end of the trial, it's kind of weird for the incentives of covering this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and then I think just the logistics of the courthouse too, like the courthouse isn't very technologically adapt, uh, set up for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But one thing as a journalist, I just wish we could have laptops in there. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think we need to stream the whole thing. I mean, I can see if, if we could, that'd be great, but I'd love to be able to take notes on laptops. And that was just totally up to the judge. Like the judge in Danny Masterson's case, let reporters who were sitting in the back row use laptops to take notes. And it was just like a night and day difference. Do you think that if the Tory Lanez trial had been broadcast to the world, that it would have been worse for him? Yes. Yeah. I think because because one problem with the transcripts that people have and are floating around is it just doesn't capture the tone of the trial mm-hmm. and kind of the buffoonery and the and the misogynistic defense that was going on and and you know I don't I don't want to badmouth his lawyer too much because in the end I think his lawyer was just doing him a favor because he'd come in on the case pretty late and Tory wanted to put on the the Kelsey Shotter defense and he was willing to do that but. You know, it's hard to get up there and talk before a jury, you know, every day for 10 days and do all the questioning of witnesses and that kind of thing. So. And people's attention span is just pretty short when it comes to the written words. So as soon as you have a video clip of something explosive being said in, on trial, yeah. it just changes everything. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think the, the the phone call was always bad for him. And there wasn't ever really much of an explanation for the phone call. And the, the one transcript that I'd like to get is the closing argument transcript where the prosecutors, the prosecutor goes over the phone call kind of line by line and just talks about how, like, what else could he have been talking about here? That was my defense that I went yeah. to when I was just having a conversation with my friends and telling them why I thought Tori was guilty. I just went straight to the phone call. It's kind of like when I have to make the case of why Trump should not ever be president again. Yeah. And you go to the, the refusal to agree to a peaceful transfer of power thing. That's just like the easiest one that you would hope that everybody would be able to agree on. 
doesn't usually seem like it works on a lot of yeah. the people that I've tried to use it on, but you know, yeah, Trump supporters it's like, oh, that big riot that he caused where like <laughs> cops died, some right? Innocent like supporter of his died, and his family's all upset about it now. Yeah, her family. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of hard to make these arguments these days. People just always assume that there's got to be a better narrative waiting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Definitely. So, okay, what are you uh, focused on at this point? Are you just trying to steam ahead with this uh, thing that you've had going? The, the big thing is the uh, the story on the character reference letters is kind of my immediate thing. There's some other celebrity cases going on, like that Post Malone lawsuit I want to look into. Right. There's that uh, lawsuit against Michael Jackson's estate that was just kicked back from the appellate court that I think will go to trial eventually from uh, – the people who claim sex abuse by him. That could be really big if it goes to trial. But other than that, it's a lot of federal cases. Actually, T.I. and Tiny are going to get a third trial against uh, MGA, the makers of those Laugh Out Loud, uh, LOL surprise dolls. And this is them, the T.I. and Tiny suing them. They were, uh, the doll company actually sued them first, but then they countersued. Okay. So T.I. and Tiny are the ones trying to get damages out of them, saying that the dolls are a trade dress infringement of the OMG girls. So if anyone remembers, like Z Zonique and Beja Rodriguez and Brianna Womack had like this girls group that I guess is, re they're reviving it now, but they're saying that the dolls infringed the unique trade dress of this group. And they lost at trial. And they were signed to T.I. or something? They, it was T.I. and Tiny, like, really worked on promoting them. And they were on the, the TV shows a lot. And, right. Uh, they that, lost the trial, but the judge has given them a new one. I don't know if I've seen a word about that in most of the hip-hop media world. It's gotten a little bit of coverage, but, yeah, it's not the most, like, yeah. Yeah, it's. I think some people think it's kind of a silly case, but it also has some really interesting cultural appropriation and oh, yeah. misappropriation things there just from what MGA does and the, the toy maker and kind of their history of taking from black creators and not crediting them at all. But mm. fortunately, none of that stuff is actually coming into trial, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a different one. But Could you see yourself veering away from putting most of your reporting straight to Twitter? Or like, is, is there an offer that a, somebody could, because did you get hired by somebody towards the end of the Tory thing? Yeah, I, I did go to LA Magazine for a bit because they were doing, uh, they're doing a big expansion and everything. And they're the ones that kind of helped me get set up with my YouTube and, and going independent and everything. But I really want to push the, my my Substack for paid subscriptions. And then also YouTube. Uh, I'm working with a production company to try to get more, get my graphics up to date and get more of a produ uh, professional production level for that. But I'd like to keep my reporting on Substack if I can, because, yeah, I mean, I do want to take it off Twitter because I don't really like the direction of Twitter. And there's just no I mean, you're not going to make a living off Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea is driving all that traffic to Substack and YouTube. So I would like to be able to keep using that for traffic, but to do all my reporting on Substack, but there's just things that happen like the, yeah. the Kenneth Petty order where I'm like, I'm not going to take the time to like write up a whole article about this, but in, you know, a minute you can just write up something real quick on Twitter and put it out there and it's and just get blasted the everywhere. best possible distribution. Yeah. And that, and that's the thing is just use it for name recognition and getting my name out. There. One of the things that has really fucked up Twitter, but has also kind of like made it less of a time suck for me is the fact that the verified tab is completely useless now. Seriously. Yeah. yeah you get huge interactions and you can't tell like where they're coming from at all. And then when you go into that tab, it's just like some, some of the people are total nobodies. Yeah. It's like, what is the this? 
vast for me is the yeah. vast majority of, yeah. of people that follow me or interact with me in any way are like a hundred followers. And then I'll yeah. see that somebody with a million followers quote tweeted me and I didn't see it for two weeks because yeah. it, there was no way to filter for that. Yeah. There has to be a way to like fix that or something, you know, but it's like the, the so, social media ecosystem. It's like trying to keep up with it and figuring out like what's coming and what's going, you know, mm. you're not, I, you getting paid by Twitter. I, I am signed up for monetization, but it's not, my payments haven't been very big. Like really? even during the, the big traffic for lanes of sentencing, it was still three digits. I mean, it was like 400 bucks or something when somebody pointed out that it's the, the rating that you get for ads. So when you look at my tweets, there aren't really a lot of ads under it because, you know, I'm writing about people getting arrested and shot and everything. And Start I, talking about real estate might be better. Well, if I, if I think if I started tweeting about uh, IA and then also Tesla, mm. if, I, if I just turned my account into a, a dedication to how great Tesla is, I think I would start making money. All of the, <laughs> like, psychotic right-wing people that I follow will continuously post about making $12,000 this week on Twitter. And well, that's just a reason to get out. It's like, oh my God, seriously. I mean, my the person who was really influential in like helping me get established on Twitter was this lawyer in LA called Ken White, and he was Popat on Twitter. And he got the hell away from Twitter like pretty shortly after Elon bought it. Because mm. it's like, come on, this isn't going to be good. Do you really want to be part of this? Yeah, I still spend a good amount of time reading it, but definitely the number of people that I like and respect who still seem like they post on it seems like it's dwindled a lot. Yeah, I mean, I wish I could just say, oh, I, I don't like Elon. I'm not going to post on there anymore. But I mean, look how many followers I have on there compared to everywhere else. I get so much traffic on there. The yeah. idea is to just drive it to my own website and drive it to, to YouTube. But it's just so nasty on there. And having spent like a cumulative five minutes on threads, I'm quite certain that there's no future for the Twitter clones of the world. Yeah. 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 Gosh, threads. And, and, and I have a friend who keeps reminding, oh, keep, keep posting on threads. I'm like, I will, but I just don't see much interaction on it. But, you know, until something takes off, you never really see anything like that. But I, all the nastiness is on Twitter. And that, that's one thing with, the, with all the Nicki Minaj reporting recently oh you're really asking for it yeah yeah. i know and i'm like oh does that mean i'm gonna get a hundred nasty messages instead of 10 but if it's cardi versus nikki it's pretty hilarious because they both have such rabid fan bases that if you take a stance against one or the other you're basically fucked yeah 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 and i'm like i just put a court document out there i really have no stance on anything else other than that but you're not up on the tasha k stuff I, you know, I am only because uh, Cardi's lawyer in the uh, album case was Lisa Moore from Atlanta, who did the whole jury trial against Tasha Kay. And mm-hmm. I'm a fan of lawyers. So I, I think Lisa's a badass lawyer. So and I think it's cool that she got this big defamation verdict. It's like really kind of hard to do. Yeah. And and actually, I, I saw you you did an interview with Tasha Kay and mm-hmm. my being the law nerd that I am when I look down the the menu of what she was talking about. The first one that I clicked on was her saying that she had crappy lawyers. She did. Like, she said yeah, she, that's my tea. She got lawyers with a $5,000 retainer. I, yeah. I, and it's such a battle between the lawyers, you know? Yeah. But, uh, I, I mean, it's such a f- badge of honor for Cardi's lawyers that that case is now being passed around as the, if you don't shut up, I'm going to, you know, this is going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think the Tasha and Cardi case was like, 
so different from just your typical internet harassment stuff. Yeah, know? listening to her defend what she said about Cardi and then sort of reading some comments that casted some doubt about how honest she was being, that really made me want to do the deep dive to figure out exactly what she actually might have said yeah. that might have been criminally liable well, for. Because she, she even says, and, and it'd be civilly liable, but she even says in your interview, right. she says that now she has uh, lawyers who you know, kind of help her out and review stuff for her, you know, do you know how to word that? I'm like, I, that's like a polite way of saying, you now have people who make sure that you don't libel people before you put stuff out on the air. Right. Because she yeah. does get a lot deeper into like unconfirmed relationship rumors and allegations about people than like a lot of the stuff that she talks about now that I follow her and see what she's talking about. It's stuff that doesn't really make it into like the mainstream hip hop news yeah. world, which is pretty interesting because she's telling me about, Oh, so, such and such rapper doesn't take care of their kids or such and such rapper did this or whatever. And this is like rappers that I follow very closely. And yeah. I'm like, I had no idea. I didn't yeah. even know that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And you know, I mean, there's always, what I just remind myself is if we went back to like the early days of newspapers, we would probably be able to find stuff. Yeah. Like that, just like gossiping about the local scion or something and, you know, who has kids with who. It's like yeah. that kind of gossip stuff has just been going on for forever. It's not it's not really me, I'd, but, you know, but but there is something to be said about that crowd kind of giving birth to the whole let's just insult people and focus on your looks. You know, it's like mm -hmm. the only the, the only area of of the Internet where everyone is just, oh, you're ugly. Like, oh, look at your eyes. You know, it's it's always <laughs> focused on on that it seems like but i i think we see that in other areas of the internet too but that's just such a weird direction to go with it like oh you don't like my ideas so you're gonna criticize the way i look yeah like I, i'm yeah. not out here saying i'm a fucking supermodel so that doesn't really work on me <laughs> well my friend jessica i did a discussion with her about it. she's like we're not in this business to be pretty right and like with, i mean especially over the last few months i've just been like i don't care if people make fun of my eyes i mean i've explained it before like my right eye leans in a little bit like if i take off my glasses and they're not focusing it's they're fine. It's just, I don't know anyone, any kind of explanation for it. And when you yeah. go into like the mainstream world and like nobody even mentions it, right. it's like just not. It's so, I mean, the whole quest for these people to be taken seriously, I think is really, is really hampered by some of like their own actions. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah. That doesn't seem like it would go too far. Well, I mean, even in, even in hip hop, a lot of times when I'm making arguments about how people deal with the media, I'll end up saying something like, I think we should all be able to agree that journalists, one of the things that separates us from authoritarian regimes like Russia is that w journalists don't have to live in fear of being attacked or, or murdered for their opinions. And I, I get a fair amount of pushback on that where that is not really taken for granted. It's like, no, if they have opinions and they're talking shit publicly, then they deserve whatever they get. And I'm like, that is not really, that yeah. is not okay. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're facing that more and more in like the Trump era and everything. But I, I do think, and one thing I'm heartened by the whole Megan the reporter experience is just how many people seem to be like relieved to have the facts. They just mm -hmm. wanted somebody to tell them like what was going on in court and to have like a clear idea of it, you know, and mm -hmm. they didn't, they didn't want any other kind of spin on it. So I was, sure. I, I felt, felt good about that. It made me feel good for journalism. Well, I am very thankful for your services that you've been putting out there because it definitely yeah. makes the Twitter timeline a lot more uh, interesting, yes. at least when you are hard at work uh, covering something. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate what you guys do too. I mean, it's opened up this whole world of like, the, it, it, it helps explain why mainstream media is just 
it's just dying and it's just not yeah. like people are getting their news elsewhere and there's so many like experimental stuff like social media stuff and and new media that's like t- getting people's attention way better than traditional media is you know? yeah but we got to do better because Flacco, who actually lined up this interview and then for some reason bailed like two hours in advance he notoriously under the no jumper account reported that tory lanes had been found oh. not guilty at a certain point which you know, the one thing that was consoling me while we were getting roasted by the internet for it was I was like, they're not going to remember this in a couple of weeks or months. Yeah. And luckily that was true. But also I was like, we just, we got to do better than that. Yeah. I've almost wondered, could we do some kind of like journalism workshop? Because I think it's so cool how all the hip hop blogs cite me all the time. Mm. But I, especially with this Nicki Minaj stuff, I'm like, do they know that that court document is just out there for everyone? Right. I mean, yeah, I, they found it for me. So I appreciate the attribution, but like, it's just a public court document. Like well, anybody can have it. Yeah, because now there's we have people sort of rising to fame within hip hop for being able to like request court documents or even like with this uh, freedom of information stuff that they've been doing and actually getting like jailhouse fights. So we're able to like see videos of King Vaughn just fighting random fucking people or <laughs> saying whatever behind bars. I mean, we're in a crazy new world, which is pretty funny because I remember the early days of like hip hop media where there was just so little regard for what was true. It was just like, we've come a long way where now people who have like more verified information seem like they're building names for themselves. There's definitely this like perpetual Peter Pan aspect to some of this hip hop world stuff where it's just like a bunch of guys who never wanted to grow up. They just like want to wear like cargo shorts and like hoodies to work every day, you know, and eventually they're going to be like 60 and like, what is the new crowd going to do to like take over and rebel? that you know the kids yeah. these days no yeah i'm i'm because that's the one thing that's weird now when you talk about like the hip-hop media landscape is that all of the guys who are like really older in their 50s and stuff are pretty much like radio guys or have corporate gigs we haven't really seen what it's like for a person within hip-hop to blow up on an independent level and then stay in that place for many decades because yeah. somebody like well vlad is like 50 so i guess he is a good example but you know academics is like 32 i'm 39 yeah. so it's like how long will the audience stay interested as we get older i guess really we we all kind of know that it's about how build how big you build your machine to be yeah yeah well and that's that's always been like what impressed me from the tory lane's case was just like this whole world of youtube people that i'm like Oh, wow. Yeah, no wonder nobody watches network news anymore. You know? mm. It's like, here you guys are. Yeah. So. And then, and it's so competitive that I will find some guy who's filming himself with an iPhone making news update videos about street stuff or whatever, <laughs> and then that will kind of replace, for me, when I'm going through my YouTube subscription, I'll find myself more interested in this super raw guy talking to his yeah. iPhone than something that's way more polished. Yeah, people like the authenticity of it, for sure, I think. Yeah. Definitely. All right. Thank you so much Thank you. for your time. Really appreciate it. Everybody follow her. Uh, we should link the sub stack in the description as well. Yes, please. Yeah. Please do. Megan. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. No Jumper. Coolest podcast in the world. Check us out on YouTube, TikTok, Patreon, Instagram, etc. Like, comment, and subscribe. Nojumper.com if you want to support. 